Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We are so excited here at Crack Rackets to be introducing a new series today. We have been in the lab. We have been workshopping. What do we want to do? Because we're obviously all well aware there will not be many results for the foreseeable future. The ATP and WTA Tour suspended until June 8th at the very earliest due to the emerging coronavirus pandemic. So we wanted to diversify our uh, content portfolio. We wanted to do a couple of new things to keep things interesting, keep things spicy and and joining me for today's new series, as he so frequently does, you know him as a former Denison men's tennis superstar, one of the co-hosts of our mini break podcast, a man I affectionately refer to as James Foster McDonald, and a guy whose eight-day tenure as a high school head's tennis ca- head coach, as successful as any eight guys out there. Jamie, hey, great shot. How are you doing today? champion, my first season. It's an honor. Um, hey, you know, the trajectory was there. It was going to be a good season, no doubt about it. But uh, it, it hasn't officially been axed, but it is uh, certainly looking that way. So I might have to look for a different coaching position, but, uh, you know, just we'll, we'll breeze over that one. <laughs> It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, no, I and I feel like the exercise we are doing today is something you would almost certainly have your players be doing in their spare time as well. And with that, like, yeah, exactly. And with that, let's get into it. Let's introduce what we are doing today. We are so thrilled to introduce a new series we are calling CR Classics. And that's fairly straightforward. You're asking yourself, what are CR Classics? Have you guys really produced enough content that you want to talk about the classics of your own stuff? Well, you don't have to worry about that. This isn't going to be us rerunning our favorite one-liners, our favorite tape from the many pods that we have done, Uh, but we are going to be focusing on some of the classic tennis matches, and in particular, those that happened in the 21st century, post-2010 as well. I will speak for myself. I was 15. I want to say Jamie was 14. Heading into that 2010, or, you know, into 2010, I guess I was turning 15. You were turning 14. Uh, So anything after that range, we should be held responsible for knowing, and of course, in the age of YouTube, there are so many available highlights to us you can go back and watch so many matches some you know only five minutes of some seven to 15 minutes of for the classic we are talking about today we got a full 35 minute video package and i do want to give a shout out perhaps inappropriately named to xxs tennis channel the youtube account that we were able to watch today's match from and we are so grateful i'm sure i can speak for you on this one jamie for all of those out there who are willing to put those matches on youtube now i'm sure some of them are going to get flagged uh Uh, because content, rights to content, one of the uh, most important things moving forward into this 21st century, but that's a topic for another time. But we are fortunate enough to have the chance to experience a 
essentially full match highlights and the match we wanted to start with the 2011 French Open men's semifinal between an undefeated Novak Djokovic and a number three seeded Roger Federer and you know before we even talk about the match and set the scene for Jamie why uh, you know you want to tell our listeners why we decided to start with this yeah I mean I think look when you start looking at classic matches it's kind of daunting is sort of like where do you go i know even for months and months you and i've been brainstorming something like this and and you know how are we going to arrange these lists because you know ultimately especially with you and also with me on this topic as well dozens and dozens and dozens match of matches come to mind right (laughs) um and so i think I think we also got some inspiration, you know, 2011 from our best seasons pod. Um, and so that, that had us thinking about Djokovic and, okay, what was a bit of a blip in that radar? You know, we're thinking about how crazy that season was. Okay, what else happened? Um, and, and a match that we had both circled on both of our lists and was near the top was this Federer and Djokovic semifinal at Roland Garros. And so it was, it just, we had to pick one and this is the first one. And boy, was it a doozy. Yeah, we talked about it, given the fact that we're not going to see many results. It was time to go back into the well, and this was something we definitely wanted to do during our Best of the Decade series. We just sort of ran out of time at the end, tried to get as many of those out to you as possible. But, you know, there have been so many great matches, as you've mentioned, over the past 10 years, 15 years, if you want to extend all the way through the big three, big four era. But perhaps no year best epitomized that era better than the 2011 season. And with that, let's get into today's match. Let's set the scene. And, you know, we're not going to, no spoilers. We won't get into the scoreline right away. But again, this Djokovic Federer match, this was the peak of the Big Four era this season. You look at the results for these guys heading into this one. Let's start with Novak Djokovic because this is the obvious takeaway. And the first joke I have written in my outline, Jamie, his 2011 season has its own Wikipedia page. Do you know how special of a season it has to be for you to have your own Wikipedia page, your own sort of outline on each of your accomplishments? It speaks to just how good Novak Djokovic was to start 2011. And for those of you who forget, uh, you know, he entered this semifinal match on a 42 match win streak he was technically 41 uh but I'm counting a withdrawal so you know 42 results for him uh you know he won the Australian Open he won Dubai he won both matches in the Sunshine uh, both Masters events of the Sunshine Swing Indian Wells in Miami he won Belgrade he won Madrid he won Rome and it wasn't just you know are the other guys the other big four players losing is he just coasting to these results no you know three and O against Federer, four and O against Rafa, two and O against Murray. Wins over guys like Burdich, like Del Potro, like Gasquet, Ferrer, Soderling, who were all in the primes of their careers as well. And then the the kicker above all else, Jamie, he beat Nadal twice on clay in the build-up to this event, this was, you know, any argument that this was his best season, it's because he started off on oh, fire. absolutely, and, you know, great job setting the scene there, because, no, I mean, it's ridiculous. It was it was all aboard the Djokovic train. I mean, this guy was running the ATP Tour, and, you know, he's being talked about the most, and rightfully so. I mean, you just mentioned something up, especially anytime you're beating Nadal multiple times on clay, you know, we're headed into Roland Garros. I mean, there's a ton of expectation that comes with Novak Djokovic, but also deservedly so. I mean, the guy was on fire. Um, and so that's that's what made this such a special clash. Yeah, and I do remember some of the storylines heading into that one was Nadal was still the number one seed. And, you know, despite as successful as Djokovic was to start his 2011, he wasn't the top-ranked player in the world. He won't ascend to number one in the rankings ever in his career until later on in this 2011 season. And 
We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, for Djokovic, it's not just that he beat Nadal. He beat him in straight sets in the Madrid final, 5-4. and four. In the Rome final, 4-4. Four and four, That he was 0-9 against Rafa on clay heading into this season. This was the first time and maybe the only time in history. And you can even go back to that 2015 season, right, for Djokovic, where as good as he was, do we really want to say he was the favorite entering that French Open? And, of course, 2015, he ended up losing in the final that year to Stan Wawrinka at the French. But I don't think it's easy to say he was the favorite heading into that one. This may be the only French Open in his career, maybe 2016 as well, because the other guys were a little bit banged up. But... I think, you know, this might be the only time Rafa entered a French Open and it yeah, wasn't I mean, look, the favorite. People were definitely calling for Djokovic to win this one. Um, and, you know, people who are backing Djokovic, how can you blame him? I mean, like you mentioned, the results he was putting up, he had looked so good. Um, not only his strokes, and we, we know his prowess on the hard court, but the the ability for him to translate this to the clay, I mean, this was dangerous. Um, you know, not only for the guys he was battling out, but the incumbents of Nadal and Federer. I mean, this guy had established himself at the top of the game. and was like, oh, now we're on the clay and I'm beating Nadal, the king of clay, you guys are in trouble. Um, and so, yeah, everybody was hyped on Djokovic and, you know, rightfully so. That's, I mean, look, he brought so much into this match and um, I'm sure we're, we're going to get into it so much, but just I'm getting excited and wanted to get ahead of myself because he looked so good leading up to this. And even in this match, he looked so good. So my only counterpoint there, and you've argued with me over this recently, is that you used the word counterpoint wrong, but you said the term looked good. The Sergio Tacchini did not look good. With all due respect to them, their stuff has gotten a lot better, but it's amazing to look back at 2011 how baggy it all was. Like, I mean, I know Djokovic, that's probably prime gluten-free Djokovic, but, I mean, you're the swag master. Tell no, me I'm No, I wrong. mean, you're right. Look, the clothing, it, it is crazy. You go back here, it's not that long ago, and it's like, wow, what are these guys wearing right now? But, you know, even the baggy <laughs> clothes and the baggy shorts especially aside, I mean, you can't hide the fact that Djokovic is a tank in this. I mean, he looks he looks intimidating. He looks way scarier than present day Djokovic. Are you kidding me? I see this. I see 2011 Djokovic on the other side of the net. I'm way more scared. The baggy pants, maybe they add to it. I don't know. It's not a great look appearance wise, but I mean, hey, he had it going. It was working. You know, if the baggy shorts are working that well, just make them even baggier until it stops working. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and now, you know, that that's fair, and obviously for him, it was working. He hadn't dropped a match up to this French Open semifinal, uh, and you look at the flip side, though, of this, for Roger Federer, and this is where things get really crazy, right, Jamie? Because let's be clear, it's 2020. Uh, he now enters with 20 Grand Slams this season, and yeah, he's been a little bit banged up. He's, what, 38, 39 years old at this point of his career, uh, but you scale the clock all the way back to 2011. After Federer lost to Djokovic at the 2011 Australian Open. It was the first time since July 2003 that Federer didn't hold any of the four major titles. And that's just crazy for me to think about because you do remember that was probably the first time and Federer was on the precipice of turning 30. And, you know, joke's on us for thinking, oh, 30 years old, he's washed. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about some of the things the commentators were saying. Um, but 
it is crazy going into this one for Federer. Yes, he you know he he wasn't holding any of the Grand Slam titles. Federer had beaten or Djokovic had beaten Federer three times already in the 2011 season. Straight sets in the Australian Open semifinal, straight sets in the Dubai final, and then a three set win for him at the Indian Wells semifinals. And then you remember that the last time these two played in a major was that 2010 U.S. Open semifinal where Djokovic fought off two match points and ended up coming back to beat. Roger. So heading into this match, I mean, Djokovic was the, and again, it, you know, it's easy for us to say this now in retrospect, but I think the facts prove it. The circumstances prove it. Djokovic for the first time was the prohibitive favorite yeah, and, against you know, Another Roger piece Federer. you didn't quite touch, but that we will certainly get to. And is, is you know, a, a theme that flows through this match <laughs> is that Fed didn't like that. He wasn't very happy with Djokovic. He was quite annoyed, uh, to say the least. And, you know, you and I will certainly mark different points in the, uh, during the match where, where that's, like, incredibly evident at, at the end. Um, you know, but uh, that, that's just another dynamic at play here, too, right? You mentioned the match points saved. Um, you mentioned the wins over Federer. Federer's not happy, um, and it shows in this. Yeah, and you look at it, look, Federer's clay uh, portion of the year had not been that great through that point. He lost quarterfinals in Monte Carlo. He lost third round in Rome, and then in Madrid, he ended up making the semifinals, but lost that match as well. Uh, so certainly, he, you know, it was Rafa or Djokovic's to lose, and that was the final all of us were anticipating heading into the tournament, but then they actually started the play. And you talk about it for Novak Djokovic. I mean, he got to the semifinals fairly comfortably, only dropped one set along the way. That was a third-round match against Del Potro. Straight sets fourth round over Gasquet and actually got a walkover over Fabio Fognini in the quarterfinals, which makes you think maybe he was too well-rested. Maybe his rhythm was thrown off, and that's a crazy thing to say. But, you know, that's one of the things that you think about, uh, certainly given the start he had uh, to this match. Although, maybe not. Again, we'll get into that in a second. But... For Federer, he came out with something to prove. And I mean, straight set wins for him up until the semifinal. He had not dropped the set. He beat Stan in the fourth round, which less impressive in 2011 than it is now. Uh, but still, that's a good win for him. And then he beat Monfils in straight sets. That was a really good win in 2011. And, you know, for Roger Federer, I'm sure going into that semifinal, he still, I think, was 14-5 and against Djokovic in their career head-to-head. So certainly the belief was there for him. You also look uh, in terms of 2006 through 2000. 2009, he went finals, 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 victory in 2009 at the French Open, lost in the quarterfinals in 2010 to Soderling, but not a bad loss by any stretch of the imagination. So for him, you know, he's never going to lack confidence going into this one. And so, you know, that's what set up these semifinals. Any final thoughts before we get into the match, Jamie? Any, you know, lingering things on what you remember going into this one? Let's dive in. I'm ready. All right, let's dive right in then. So let's start, and again, we're going to go set by set here. We're going to talk about all of the biggest moments, all of the you know the big points, the opportunities each of these guys had, some of the funny things the commentators were saying during these matches. And- Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com you know the first thing right off the bat that you have to mention in this match uh roger federer comes out hot 
And, I mean, he goes up love 40 in that first game, ends up breaking Djokovic for, uh, you know, one love, and hits, I think it was the love 15 point, where he smacks a forehand down the line, Jamie, and it's just so clear from the get-go, as you mentioned. He oh, came out ready. to play. And he's fired up. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you could tell from the first first couple of points, in particular in that first game, I mean, he's setting the tone. Um, and then both of them, you know, within the first couple of games are really setting the tone for what kind of match that this is going to be. And ultimately what that is is just a sheer battle. Um, and so they did a great job of that. Yes, Federer certainly said in the tone that, what, you're going to come to my forehand? I'm going to rip it and make you pay. Um, and, you know, another theme throughout the match, certainly that. Um, I know you had shared some some thoughts about that, and we'll get that as the match progressed. But, yeah, certainly at the beginning, Federer was out there to prove the fact that you're going to go to my forehand, I'm going to slap it for a winner and make you pay. Yeah, I also think yeah, that's the biggest thing. He was also hitting through the backhand, right? It was just, there was no messing around. He was willing mm-hmm. to grind as well. You go further on in the set, and as you mentioned, you know, to Djokovic's credit, because he had, that's a slap in the face. No one in 2011 was coming out and breaking Djokovic at, you know, in a love 40 lead uh, and then breaking him. But Djokovic immediately responds, gets the break back at 1540. They then play a five deuce game at one all. And just, I mean, the first. You know, 20, 25 minutes of this match, it, there, it, there's no chaser. Straight shots, right? It's like, let's go. Let's do this thing. Djokovic hits a couple of just ridiculous volleys. The drop volley he hit, I think, on deuce number four, uh, or maybe it was the first deuce where he hits this just low backhand drop yeah. volley, and then I think it's deuce five where he hits the over-the-shoulder, and I'm doing this on camera. Uh, I guess there will be a video component, so some of you may be able to see this if you go on YouTube, Super Producer Westoff, up to all sorts of fun things. But just like an over-the-shoulder flick. And, you know, it, it it was just, it was off to the races. I will, though, say Federer holds for two all. And, uh, you know, it, I think it was right after that or maybe even a little bit before that. Actually, it was after the first break. Mary Carrillo run, yells out, you know, someone is yelling in the crowd. And it's just a typical French Open crowd. It, they are rowdy. And I will also say this, heavily partisan towards Fed. And I do wonder if that screwed with Djokovic's head a little bit at all at the beginning. I mean, potentially, look, when we're talking about Federer and Djokovic matchups, um, the idea that the that the fans are going to be pro-Federer is not a novel one, right? That's something that we've seen for for quite a <laughs> while. And, you know, it, it holds true today and it also held true then in this match. And yeah, you definitely heard some of that. Um, I, I think this is when this is really where you circle the opportunity for Djokovic to play the villain role, right? Um, you know, get in that mindset and, you know, certainly go to battle and, and that he did. Um, yeah, you, of course, if you have people actively shouting out against you, might not be the best thing for you. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it, in that sort of sense, like dynamic, not surprised that it's pro-fed and uh, sort of anti-Djokovic because we've seen that tons and tons of times over their career. No, without question. And look, you look at the flow of this match, though. After getting punched in the face to start things out, Djokovic comes out swinging, and I thought in the first set in particular, it was weird. He played a lot to the Federer forehand, and there's something to be said about, you know, the obvious thing when you're playing Roger Federer, pick on the slice backhand, serve to that side, and, you know, set everything up and go through that side, Um, but that's not what Djokovic was doing. He was clearly just playing get you outside of the court, get you to the outer thirds, open up as much space as I can for myself. I mean, it's clay court tennis, so there's some, uh, you know, wiseness in that. It's wise to employ that strategy as well, but Djokovic then comes out, gets the break again at that 
three two uh, fights off a break point to hold for three two. Then he just he does classic Novak Djokovic. For that was the first time I thought he really locked in. He started grinding Federer down. He gets the break for four two. Federer, of course, then comes out hot, races out to another love forty lead in a Djokovic service game, gets that break right back. You know, now it's now it's a three four uh big serve, you know, serve plus one, four all from Federer. He holds Djokovic holds forty thirty for five four. And that's where things get interesting in this set, right? Djokovic ends up racing out to a 15-40 lead. And I think one of the themes, uh, themes we are going to see, and this is something you just, re- if you haven't seen 2011 Roger Federer, if you don't remember what that feels like, because they keep winning, right? There's no need to go back and look at old Federer wins because he's still doing well now. But his willingness to grind and just his willingness to step forward, his willingness, his physicality, all of these different things, and then ultimately just his first serve, his he was just a different beast in 2011. And, I mean, you look at the stats in this match. He made 65% of his first serves. He won 77% of those first serve points. Roger was making first serves. And even though Novak Djokovic, who I think we would both say greatest returner of all time, there was nothing he could do. Yeah, I mean, look, his serve was just phenomenal in this match, and really, that's what kept him in it. And a lot of times, you know, you talk about the different sets um, that Djokovic could have and perhaps should have won. Looking back on it, um, and what's sort of the main reason he didn't is because Fed was able to get himself out of trouble on his service games. Right? You mentioned this four or five game in particular. He's down serving fifteen forty. You know, he's leaning on his serve, the, the Federer staple. That's what's going to keep him in this match, and, and ultimately, that's what gets him through. Um, and, and so, it's interesting to see. Um, I mean, look, the effectiveness of Federer serve, it's something that's still talked about, you know, in 2020. Uh, but the way he's able to pair it with the other pieces of his game, the movement, the physicality, just the sheer athleticism that sometimes we don't get to see enough of these days, it's it just truly exceptional. I think this was the first match I remember seeing Roger Federer really sliding on a clay court. And you remember early in his career, he didn't like to do it. And it was something he tried to avoid, but he got better and better. And in this match, you know, there was no holding back, right? He was all in on to just physically staying, put, staying, keeping up with Djokovic as often as possible. As we mentioned, 1540, Djokovic has two set points. Federer goes with a big serve, plus one forehand, which he hits behind Djokovic. And then on the next one, just big serve down the tee to fight off those two set points. A couple of serve, plus one forehands later. It's 5-all. And I will say this. I think it was at that deuce point at 5-all. Federer actually goes with a drop shot, and Djokovic starts to get a little bit cute, right? And that was one of my takeaways from this first set as well, is he was just way too content playing to— And this look, if I was 42-0, and I wouldn't be wearing a shirt at any time of the day, just period. I'd be that confident at all times. I'd be rocking and rolling. I'd be dancing on tabletops, just being a ridiculous human being, even more so than I was in our most recent Overserved uh, episode, where I actually was dancing on a tabletop. Uh, but it, it, yeah, thank you. Hey, great shot to me um but you know you just talk about i just i again it's subjective but the vitriol between these two it was like you think you're gonna beat me novak no 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 my friend like well i'm roger freaking Federer. watch what i'm capable of and so you know a couple of uh djokovic went down 15 30 but he ends up holding for six five on a ridiculously physical point Federer with just some crazy down-the-line shots, two aces and a big uh, first serve to hold at 40-30 for six all. And the come on he lets out to hold for that tiebreaker, Jamie. Again, let's get into this now. 
they might be more friendly now. In fact, one could even argue they might be friends now. They weren't in 2011. They just weren't. You can't watch Federer's body language and say he was. Yeah, and I mean, this is also, look, you're, you're looking at somebody who's maybe um, perhaps a little nastier on court than he needs to be. Um, and there are people who I would consider friends who, you know, I would get very intense on the court with. But this, you could feel it. You could feel it. You could feel that he did not like this little, you know, Novak Djokovic punk on the other side of the net. Um, you know, Djokovic was doing different things that have made him mad, uh, that have made Federer mad throughout the match. And then just also in their head-to-heads, obviously the comebacks, you know, that's sort of out of the control. But things that Djokovic has done and said, you know, just rub Federer the wrong way. And, man, he was just tired of it. He was just tired of it. And and you could see it in this match. The intensity with which Federer played, um, the commands and focus, um, you know, celebrations and fist pumps that we see later in the match. I mean, it all points to this fact. Um, and it made for an even better match because there was so much animosity and tension between these two. Um, that it really just made the, you know, one another push, push that much harder because they both wanted this so badly. Yeah. And, we're going to spend five minutes at the end on the finger wag. Don't worry, Probably. folks, because that might be... I think that's the moment of Roger Federer's career. Spoiler alert for my take. It's just... It, if you're going to make an argument for him being the greatest of all time, start with that gif. Just show him... Because I get chills down my spine just thinking about it right now. Like, I'm so excited to bring it up. I, I can feel every hair on my arm just standing up straight. And it's like, are we about to talk about this? But no arm, settle down. Like, we'll talk about you a little bit later. Um, but, yeah... So it's 6-all, right? And they go to the breaker, and Federer did race out to a 4-2 mini-break lead. Djokovic ends up unloading on a cross-court forehand to get us back to 3-4, and then back-to-back shanks from Federer. He's up 5-4 on serve. Uh, Then a couple of unforced errors from Djokovic, and then, you know, so it's on serve. Federer wins the point, so it's 5-6. Djokovic serving. He hits a great first serve, uh, and he has a backhand that I thought he could have approached on, Jamie, but... This is something we're going to see from Djokovic throughout this match. He was just afraid to come to the net, and that's a testament to, in my opinion, how well Roger Federer was moving in that match, just how determined. There were a lot of sliced backhands from Federer that I thought, okay, had Djokovic moved into the shot before, cut that one off, he would have made Federer have to hit a really tough pass. And sure, Federer's capable of making those passes, but I thought Djokovic was too hesitant, too passive. Maybe it's a, it speaks to the moment. It speaks to the fact when the crowd's in your head, you just want to prove them wrong. You don't want to give them a reason to blow up as they would for a Federer on-the-run passing shot. And ultimately, it's Federer who gets the win after, a four, uh, after Djokovic hits an unforced error on the forehand, and he lets out a roar. Let me tell you, 7-6, he takes that first set. Last question on this set, Jamie. Do you think the right player won it? Oh, I the right player. I don't know. That's that's such a um, that's such a loaded question. The better player. Yeah, who is the better player in the set, in your opinion? I mean, just point to point, probably Djokovic. But the problem is, you know, in the big opportunity points, he didn't, you know, he didn't seize them, right? And, and credit to Federer because he served himself out of trouble multiple times, right? That's what we've come to expect. But I mean, yeah, Djokovic has the opportunities to take this set for sure. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that final point that ultimately gives Federer the set. Yeah, Djokovic probably could have come in behind it. You mentioned all the different factors, why he didn't, maybe. I mean, God, if you're that solid from for ground stroking, wouldn't it be hard to give that up and risk it coming to the net sometimes? I mean, you've got to feel like that's a factor. Um, and so ultimately, that miss that gives Federer the set, 
he shouldn't miss that ball. You know, that rally ball where he's got control of the point, he shouldn't miss it. Um, so that's really the one that kind of stings a little bit because you're like, eh, in a way, you just gave it to Fed. But, I mean, ultimately, you take that away. I mean, Djokovic does the right things. For me, it's more about Federer getting out of, you know, bad situations as opposed to Djokovic, you know, giving it to Federer. Yeah, I think that's fair. Again, one of the takeaways is just how f***ing good Roger Federer was in this match. I mean, he played so well, just the movement. And again, he was just crushing the ball. It was so impressive. Um, But, you know, I do want to quickly run through some of my favorite commentator notes. And I do want to say also, early on in this match, it seemed like both guys were frustrated with the court surface. It seemed slippery out there, and there were a bunch of bad bounces, and it did feel like they both needed a second to get acclimated to the moment, but some of the gems in this one, and I think it was Brett Haber who was the main guy on the call who was doing the comment, you know, play-by-play, and then for color was our girl MC Mary Carrillo, as well as Johnny Mack, John McEnroe. Um, you know, Djokovic gets that break for 4-2. That's why he's in the best in the world. That return of serve, just like that, he's up Four two, and it's true. That's what it felt like when Novak took that early lead. Um, but then Johnny Mac, with I think one of the best, maybe his best piece of advice ever, he says to me, um, "It's a more important set for Federer to win to somehow pull out because if you go down one set to love to Novak Djokovic in 2011, at that point, you're just staring down the barrel of, oh my God, I'm gonna have to grind him out for two and a half more hours. Like that's just that's the hardest thing you can do in tennis, right? And so I thought he nailed that one, and then. And the last one, who again, I think it was Brett Haber, who was the main guy on the play-by-play call, who goes, just winning a set from Djokovic takes that effort. And he was right. It took every ounce of Federer's skill to win that first set. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's interesting when you think about it. We haven't touched on it enough, probably. We've talked about it individually. But let's just say, you know, let's let's aggregate it together for a second. The level of play here, insane. Uh, I mean, oh. just ridiculous. Like, yeah, there. You know, we talked about the the, the Djokovic unforced error to ultimately end the set, but that doesn't. You know, what we've done doesn't really uh, do justice to the level of play that we saw. I mean, this was incredible from both these guys. I mean, they are absolutely cracking the ball. Um, you know, you, you talk about Federer and Djokovic both now. Yeah, maybe you know, particularly in the Federer camp, say, oh yeah, you know, they talk about who would beat who, right? The 2019-2020 Federer or like the 2011 one. You know, you can make all these, you know, uh, sort of comments about experience, things you've learned on the tour, how to play matches, etc. Pure strokes wise, it is not even close. And it takes, you know, fully watching a match like this a couple of times to go back and realize just how good this guy was and together how good they both were. I mean, they were absolutely cranking the ball and the movement was exceptional on both sides of the court. I mean... I, that, that's my biggest takeaway from this match as a whole. Who won it? Who lost it? Five sets, four sets, three sets. I don't care. I mean, the level of tennis in this match was absurd. No, let's do this now. I agree. We can touch on it again at the end. But anyone who says these guys are better now than they were back in 2011 is nuts. Like, you just are, you're wrong. Like, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. And look, I'm someone who believes in progress, right? I think that the game should continue to get better. I think, you know, a guy like FAA, like a guy like Andre Rublev, they do hit the ball harder than anyone I've ever seen. Um, But that doesn't mean they're better than these guys. And you want to know why the big three can hang on? It's because they can afford to drop off from this top level in 2011 where they were untouchable. You know, it's just to... To, in my mind, to try and like comprehend a game plan to beat Novak Djokovic in 2011, 
I like I got nothing. And look, I'm not trying to say I'm a Paul Anacone or, you know, one of the brightest minds in tennis, but I watch a lot of tennis, like a lot of it. And I, I just, I got nothing. Like I, I watched Roger Federer win these points and I just think to myself, how did he do that? Like, yeah. how did he come up with that on the slide forehand shot? It's just incredible. I mean, at the end of the day, he's slapping, right? <laughs> like, he's just good at it. That's the difference. He's slapping, but he's good at it. That's the difference. No, <laughs> Novak Djokovic is sliding into his oh, and then elevating forehand. I'm just outrageous. like, how do you do yeah, that? And he makes I, it I look so it. easy. You know, I mean, look, Djokovic, we've talked about, the guy is just, you know, robotic at times. Uh, the shots that this able that, that this guy is able to pull off um, pretty much just at will and consistently, obviously this is what gave him such a great run in 2011 and um, what set the scene for this match to be so spectacular. But, yeah, I mean, these guys, I mean, what they're doing with the ball point in, point out is just straight up ridiculous. I mean, out of this world. And really that's one of the big reasons why we decided to, to break down this match is because, you know, you look back at it even for two minutes and you're like, my God, did you see that? <laughs> you know, you end up rewatching multiple points over and over and over because the level is just that good. Yeah, and, you know, you talk about uh, Djokovic being robotic. He's the most well-oiled, most fluid robot out there, too. It's not just like, you know, he's a machine, he's stiff and any of these things. And I know that's not what you meant, but it's just, you know, the Spider-Man meme might be the only, you know, the signature shot of 2020 because we might not get much more tennis out of anyone. And Djokovic is literally crawled down in, like, the Spider-Man position. It's ridiculous. But I... (laughs) I just I, I cannot believe the, the level of play, and that's why Federer lets out that roar at the end of the set, and you know to transition now to get us to set number two, and this is and for the record, just to recap, set number one seven six seven five four Roger Federer, but starting out set number two, and this is a set you know Roger ends up taking six three. Djokovic had a break chance right from the get-go. He you know, he uh, gets right there. I think it was 30-40, but yep. Federer hits an ace, and then a couple of other big serves. And as you mentioned, that's the recurring theme, is Federer just routinely finding aces, or routinely finding big first serves that end up being unreturnable to take leads. Uh, you know, he holds at, uh, Djokovic holds at 15 for one all, but then it's a love hold for Federer 2-1. And then Federer does his thing, right? Uh, you know, it's Federer races out to a 15-40 lead because you can just tell Djokovic starting to sort of lose it. And, you know, he, in here he starts to say, um, you know, Mary Carrillo makes a comment there. He points out, like, Djokovic just looks down. Djokovic is down right now. And, you know, I just think that's not Djokovic go back is down. Maybe for these podcasts he can put in that sound effect right there. So hopefully you just heard the lovely tones of uh, Mary Carrillo. Um, but, I mean, Federer just... There was a you know a bump return from uh, Djokovic uh, from Federer just to get the point back in play, and you just forget because he's obviously still very good at it. But Federer just runs around and just unloads on an inside out forehand, and then that sets up the inside in, and you're just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like if Djokovic can't track that ball down, who can? Yeah, nobody can is the answer. And Federer, look, that's what he was out to say. I mean, that's what he was, you know, out to prove in this match. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned that opening game. I mean, this really set the tone for me because, you know, this this is a whole different set if Djokovic converts that break in the first game. You know, you're completely switching the momentum. You're saying, ah, okay, you know what? I gave up that tie break. Um, you know, probably should have won the set, but we're getting right back and I've got this break. But instead, like you said, and like I mentioned before, Federer serves his way out of trouble, um, gets himself on the on the sort of straight and narrow and then yeah set twos off to the races yeah and so you know again 
for uh, Federer, big serving, 40-15 hold for 4-1. A lazy start from Djokovic, whatever. Love 30, but he ends up holding 4-2. Federer, easy service game for 5-2. Djokovic then uh, fights off five set points in that Mm 2-5 service game. Uh, Federer hits this incredible on-the-run forehand to set up a triple set point opportunity from himself, but uh, or for himself. But Djokovic then starts going into the body. He starts jamming him, and you know I think it was in that moment where he made the switch, and he said, "Okay, you know what? Serving to the forehand, serving out wide on the deuce side, it's just not going to work for me. I, I just I can't do this anymore. Roger's playing too well today, and there is something to keeping Roger honest to saying, "Hey, I'm not afraid of your forehand, but on this day." He had to be afraid of his forehand, and you can just tell because then you get into this 5-3 game, and, you know, Roger races out with an unreturnable serve, a serve plus one, and a volley for 30 love. And then Djokovic starts to do his thing, right? He starts to grind him down. He starts to extend points. He actually gets to 30-40, but then, you know, Roger... Another big first serve, and initially it was called out. And it's really funny because there's a moment where they sort of both, you know, Djokovic looks at it, the line judge looks at it, and they're like, yeah, that wasn't out. Uh, and so they end up giving it to Federer, deuce point up. And then Federer just does his thing. Two more big first serves, a smart forehand down the line, and it's 6-3 Federer, and he lets out a roar. And at that point, Roger Federer had never lost a match, being up two sets to love. And I, you know, I think even McEnroe, I think even Mary Carrillo, just all of us started thinking because of just how well he was playing. He was hitting through every backhand, right? He was just, there was no slice. He was going after every ball, trying to track everything down. Nowadays, you see Federer throw away points, right? Because he's old. He's 38, 39 years old. You just can't do that. But he was not doing that in this French Open. I thought he decisively took this 6-3 second set. Yeah, and look, it probably should have been 6-2, if we're being honest. He had the chances to make it mm-hmm. 6-2. Uh, I mean, a couple things. I, I mean, first of all, this match could be completely different if he doesn't hit that ace on break point. But he does. It, once again, showing the theme of serving when he's in trouble. Um, I, I think one thing to note as well, he did hit through his backhand really well, Federer. Um, he also used the slice in an intelligent way, I would say. You know, he wasn't just slicing to slice. He would slice and then set up his forehand to absolutely send a rocket the other side. So he still did that. Of course, you're never going to take the slice out of Federer's game. Um, yeah, Fed takes it 6-3. The only thing I'll note, just because I think it's important for the flow of the matches Djokovic's idea of going to the forehand yeah you mentioned maybe the 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 idea of trying to prove something there to me I mean it's also more strategic in the fact that he's trying to go to the forehand so that he can open up attacking to the backhand right I mean that's I mean that's something that has to be said but yeah you're right he started doing that particularly on the deuce side serving out wide and Fed was just all over it to the point where Djokovic couldn't capitalize and then attack back to Federer's backhand. And he finally was like, okay, I can't do this, right? Because Fed's getting such a clean look on his forehand that I'm not even getting the chance to open up the court. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. And that's a perfect transition into set number three because, and I mean, I I guess it's hard to discuss this in retrospect because we both knew the scoreline going in. So, you you know, I, I can't even ask you, did you think Djokovic still had the chance at the end of set two? Because, you know, we both know he didn't. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, anyone. Sorry, I hate to tell you this, but uh, Djokovic <laughs> doesn't win this match in case you didn't yeah. know. Um, but, you know, his level of play dipped, not tremendously, but it dipped w- without question in that second set. Yeah. And so now you start to think to yourself, it okay, He's down two sets to love against a guy who doesn't blow two sets to love leads. 
But you're absolutely right because at the start of the third set, Djokovic just locks in on the Federer backhand. And, you know, Federer gets that opening game to deuce, but Djokovic extends a bunch of rallies, holds for 1-0. He then races out to a 15-40 lead in the Federer service game. Uh, and uh, at on the 30-40 point, I think it's a 16-ball rally. Or, excuse me, it's a 12-ball rally, uh, not including the serve and the return. Uh, or including the serve and the return, excuse me. Eight of t- of the ten shots Djokovic hit, or so I guess double it. Excuse me, if Djokovic is hitting ten shots, it's a twenty ball rally. Eight of Djokovic's ten shots targeted the Federer backhand. He locked in. He said, "Okay, this is how I'm winning this match. I have to draw slices from you. I have to make it as physical as possible." And that he broke for the two love lead again. I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking about this because I'm just thinking about the level. And you know, I, I happen to just watch these highlights again today, and. Yep. He just enters that zone, right? That was the the 2010 U.S. Open semifinal was the preview, but this is the Djokovic zone. When you always ask yourself, and you know, earlier this season when he fought off match points against Monfils, you're like, how does he summon that? How does he just get to that point where he goes to brick wall mode? He's like, you know what? I'm just I'm not going to miss anymore. It was matches like these where you saw it for the first time, and you just thought to yourself, okay, this guy's special. Yeah, look, and you know when we talk about Novak Djokovic's strategy in this one, obviously he understood how to win on clay. I mean, that guy sure. was looking just so good. But I mean, Federer in this day was just a different beast, and so you could tell. Um, and you know, I'm I'm gonna call on my own experiences. Please keep in mind. <laughs> The level of tennis here is embarrassingly nowhere near what we're discussing, but you know you can sort of relate to Djokovic's you know idea here, right? He knows he needs to get to the Federer backhand, so like I mentioned, he's looking to open it up with the forehand first and then go and attack there, but that's not working. So what does he do? He says, "Okay, I'm going to go into full grind mode and I am going to hammer the backhand side. That's all I'm going to do, whether it's down, whether it's you know forehands inside out, whether it's backhands cross court, whether it's a forehand that I'm rolling down the line." Every single ball is going to go to your backhand because if I can't open it up properly, maybe at least I can break it down to a degree where I can get something else to attack. And, you know, you look at it in set three and, man, a lot of times it worked. I mean, Djokovic did a great job in set three of shifting his game a little bit. You know, you talk about the dip in set two. At times almost looked like he was tanking. Even McEnroe said that. Um, Set three, certainly not that way. I will say, though... This match is completely different if Fed gets that break in game one because it's close. He gets it to deuce. Once Djokovic gets that under his belt, gets the 1-0 hold, you can see a little bit more comfort set in. He's able to just neutralize points and then hammer the backhand. Um, and then from there, you know, he's confident throughout the rest of the set. Yeah, a couple of pivotal moments, and you know, this first one gets back to our uh, fact of do these guys like each other? Well, it's 30-all. Federer hits a yep. serve plus one for and you know a couple of forehands around the court, but he mistakenly tries to go behind Djokovic with a forehand approach, and Djokovic just unloads a forehand right at his body, and you yep. know Federer gets his racket on it, but shanks it wide, and in fact, again we have the McEnroe clip here of him saying, you know, I think he goes, "Wow, that was interesting." Last stuff you can put in the actual clip now. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was interesting. But it speaks to the fact that Djokovic locked in. You're right. The belief, it was there. And yeah, Federer ended up holding for 3-1. And it's funny because he hits an ace on the very next point to save a break point. He's kind of like, you know, again, sorry for the choice language, but he's kind of like, f*** you, Novak. Like, you think you're going to hit at me? You just woke the sleeping dragon again. Mistake. Um, But this set was just... 
it was just, I think Federer, once he went down that break, he was kind of like, okay, I, I got to pick my spots because I definitely can't hang with Djokovic for six hours. No one can, especially 2011 Djokovic. He's the elastic man. Um, and, you know, it was a bunch of routine holds. And uh, Federer really, I don't think, had many, if any, break point chances in this one. And, you know, Djokovic holds at love for 6-3, mm-hmm. and he seals it with an ace down the tee, which was one of those, oh, I'd been picking on your backhand so long. Let me just keep you honest here. Let me hit that ace to get the set. But this set was all about Novak Djokovic locking in, and it was fascinating to me. The crowd went silent. Like I think they were excited to see more tennis, but that was where even the crowd was like, uh-oh, like is it about to be Novak time? Mm-hmm. And it really almost was. Yeah, it almost was. I do want to go back to that, you know, 0330 all point because I think, you know, yeah, it's only one point, but man, I mean, just emotionally, this this was a big one. Um, I mean, Federer is at the net, you know, not defenseless, but Djokovic can go anywhere with this ball pretty much. Um, and he rocks one 100 miles an hour right at his body. Um, and Rocks it. I mean, it's yeah, great. You, you, no, nothing we can do can do this justice. I mean, you have to see how hard he hits this ball <laughs> and just the, the setup for it. I mean, it is very clear what he's doing. And, you know, it, it's a moment where Federer's like, that's how you want to play this? Let's go. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> that, that's what it is. Um, and so, you know, maybe Djokovic plays it incorrectly here by, like you say, you know, uh, angering the beast even further. But I mean, that's it is exactly what he did. Um, and so I think in the back of his mind, Federer for the rest of the match held on to that. And was like, are you kidding me? This prick? Like, let's go. Um, and so you mentioned, yeah, Djokovic is able to hold on to the break that he established, gets it done in set three. But come set four, it's a different story. Yeah, and look, again, Mary Carrillo had pointed this out at the beginning of the set. We mentioned it as well when we were setting the scene. Federer hadn't dropped the set in this entire French Open, and again, to his career at that point, he had yet to drop a, a Grand Slam match when being up two sets to love. But the the reason I brought up the vibe of the crowd is you, you look out and you, know, you watch the match, and Djokovic felt very much alive after that third set, and you know we talked about it at the end of that first set. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He had chances in that first set. Mm-hmm. He very easily could have won that first set. He had two set points, and it's just kind of like, okay, like, yeah, that one got away from me, but I'm 42 and, you know, and oh, and, like, I'm not out of this yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, what we saw through the uh, through the way of that third set, uh, you know, it was, it was just, uh, excuse me, getting into that fourth set, just the level of play at the start of it. Because you're right, Federer towards the end of the third was kind of like, all right, I think I have to conserve. Like, I don't think I'm going to get this one. You can can just tell from the way he's playing it's the only time in the entire match where maybe he let a ball go by you know maybe he uh was slicing the backhand a little bit more and I think at one point they point out and say you know Federer does look a little bit tired and McEnroe even at the end makes his prediction Westoff you can cut the clip in here where he uh talked about how he you know I'll quote him here he says uh and this match will not finish in my opinion this match will not finish in my opinion 
you know, that's a testament to him saying uh, uh, that there were no lights at the French Open at the time. When things got dark, they would pro- postpone uh, again. And they would postpone matches and uh, play them the next day because they just couldn't keep playing them. Um, but, you know, it shows they felt it in the booth. And we felt it as the fans. And then again, you get through uh, that third set. Just routine holds up until three all in the fourth. Uh, and then you start to get to where we're at in uh, you know that four three game. Uh, Federer, there's this point. It's thirty love. Uh, Federer's up. He gets extended outside the deuce alley on a Djokovic forehand. Djokovic goes behind him again. Federer has to change direction. He sort of loses his footing, scrambles and hits a slice. Uh, and you know it's it's really impressive stuff. That he even got to that ball, uh, and then Djokovic just, uh, or and then Djokovic, you know, finally approaches to the backhand and moves forward, and Federer just, you know, unloads an on-the-run one-handed backhand pass down the line, and that led the commentator to say, you know, that's Grandpa, and I know that's something you pointed out as well. Westoff, give me the clip here, please. Oh, wow. good standing ovation, please. <laughs> that's Grandpa. That's Grandpa. <laughs> that is. But it did feel like, you know, again, they referred to an almost 30-year-old Fed at, as grandpa. With what we know now, that's laughable. But if, you know, Jimmy, that shot epitomizes Federer's just like, nope, like, it's on. I'm, I, you think I'm going to drop off? No chance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we, we've talked about the level of play. But, yeah, that right there, especially so deep into a match that had already been so grueling. I mean, Fed's here to win this match, and, and if that point's not setting the tone, I don't know what is. Um, you know, one point that I wanted to call out just briefly before that one is there's probably a point in this match, you know, Djokovic hits a big ace, you know, serving 2-3, 30-all. In my opinion, that pretty much keeps him in this match. Yeah, he ends up losing set number four, but not until much later. If he gets broken there at 2-3 to go down 2-4, the way Federer was looking and the way Federer was serving through this set, Djokovic doesn't have a chance in set number four. It's really glad you mentioned it because in my notes I have big ace from Djokovic at 30-all, mm. serves to Fed backhand and hits the approach to that side as well, 4-3-3. Um, and yeah, that that was a critical hold. That was one of those moments where you thought, is the momentum about to shift? Is Federer, as he so often does, going to put his foot on the neck and sort of take away from there? And then, you know, Federer, as we mentioned, gets that ridiculous on-the-run backhand. He holds at love for 4-3. And then we had the commentator's jinx, right? Because after that, Mary Carrillo points out, hey, he has lost just one point on serve this entire set. But it speaks to the fact that I, I mentioned earlier, you look at the stats in this match, you know, he won 77% of his first serve points, 70 of 91. He saved nine of the 13 break points he faced in this match. When Roger Federer needed a big first serve, he got it in this one. Yeah. Certainly, um, you know that's <laughs> look. We've said it a million times, but that's that's sort of tried and true. Federer, right? When he's in trouble, when his back's um, sort of against the wall, when he's cornered, I mean, that's what he can rely on. And look, you're playing against the best returner of all time, so at some point, you're just probably going to get broken, right? Um, and you know, ultimately, it happens here. I know this is one that we talked about about a missed opportunity late in this set for the for Djokovic, particularly. But man, I mean, he breaks Federer deep into this set, um, but Federer doesn't go away. Right, I mean, Djokovic is serving for this match, or excuse me, serving for the set um, in the fourth set, five four, 
Federer's not phased, right? I mean, even that first point, you know, he's sending the signal. He's still out here grinding, and he's ripping to get back in the set. You know, he's not giving it up to then, you know, play the fifth set on what would have been the next day because surely had this one gone Djokovic's way, they would have had to postpone and play the next set later. But Fed's right here in this match, and, you know, Look, if you're ever going to, you know, teach somebody about how mental the game of tennis is and how serves how serving and breaking works, you point to this match. I mean, everything about this match is mental, particularly when you look at the timing of breaks. I mean, look, it happened from the very beginning with switching breaks in, in game number one and two. It happened right here when Djokovic is serving for the match just after breaking, and Fed breaks him right back to stay in it, right? I mean, this is exceptional stuff right here, and Federer is just truly showing why, even though you know he's probably not the favorite going into this match, throughout the match, his level had been so high that he's like, so what, you're serving for the match? I'm still very much in this, or serving for the set, excuse me, I'm still very much in set number four. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it's a routine hold for four all. Federer then, or Djokovic raced out to a love 30 lead. Federer, though, outgrinds him on that 15-30 point, then couple of unreturnable serves for 43 but that four all game was a five deuce game right it took every ounce of Novak Djokovic's energy to win that game and then they just play this absurd 22 shot rally uh you know Djokovic uh on the break point just Djokovic goes Federer backhand Federer backhand to the Federer backhand to the Federer backhand to the Federer backhand finally opens up the space he wants and goes down the line with a backhand on the winner. And again, the roar he, or excuse me, to get to break point and then just the roar he lets, he lets out on the plus one ball miss from Federer for the 5-4 break. You can just see Novak Djokovic is like, oh yeah, I got this one. Like, you don't want to play a fifth set against me, Roger. And it looks like he does. But this is where the testament to Roger Federer's greatness comes in. This is why, and we'll talk about it as soon as we're done with the match, but I would argue this is the best I've ever seen him play because he races out to a love 40 lead, right? And in that first one, you know, Djokovic makes the mistake, and this is what happens when you go up a break. He gets a little bit cocky on that first point. He serves to the Federer forehand. They play an extended rally, but, you know, Federer trips him up, and, you know, he gets the prank. Love 30, he serves to the Federer backhand, and again, probably should have moved in on a plus one ball, but he hesitates, and then Federer unloads a one-hander down the line for love 40, and, you know, couple of easy points then for Djokovic to get to 30-40, but Federer then, how many times have we seen this combo? Hits through a backhand return, goes inside out with a forehand, and then sets up an inside in for himself, and he just unloads on that inside in, and, you know, that's for five all, and it's just, I, I just, like, I couldn't believe it, because it really, in that moment, rewatching, I was like, oh yeah, we're going five, like, perfect, like, there's still six minutes left in this video, that must be because there's a fifth set coming that Djokovic is going to run away with. No, like not only does Djokovic not get to game point on or get to set point in this game, but just Federer upped his level. And yeah, he, you know, he was 10 years younger then or nine years younger, whatever it is, than he is now, but he was still almost 30. And like he just raised his level as the greatest ones do. And it was just phenomenal. And, you know, Two routine hold, or I guess not two routine holds. Djokovic uh, hits this ridiculous slide, cross court on sliding forehand to get to break point at thirty forty. But again, more big serving for Federer gets him out of trouble there. Four six five. Djokovic again pulls off a drop shot for forty thirty. Sloppy error for Deuce, but just a ridiculous down the line backhand to set up a game point for himself, and then an unreturnable serve gets us to a breaker. 
These two were at their best the entire match. We can't keep emphasizing it enough. It was, you know, every shot you took in the face, you gave one right back. And just, oh, Novak, you think you're going to hit this sliding backhand? Well, I'm Roger freaking Federer. I'm going to go down the line with my forehand. It was just phenomenal. And I guess, again, going into that fourth set breaker, who did you feel like, you know, after Djokovic got broken serving for the set, did you feel that was deflating? Or did you think it was still either or going into the breaker? I still think it's either or because look, with the momentum of this match, it, it had been so much of a back and forth, right? Somebody does something, the other one reciprocates it, and it's it's suddenly back to neutral, right? We saw that at the beginning of honestly, uh, like a lot of these sets, right? People have chances, and even if they convert, boom, it's right back. That's happened literally since the first two games of the entire match. So you know, in this one, you still think that this is anybody's tiebreak. To me, though, if you're okay with me going into the tiebreak, I mean, the first point, do it. The first point of this to me is so phenomenal, especially from the camp of Federer, because, I mean, look, if there was any time for Federer to be like, nah, this is my match and it's on my racket, it's point number one of the four set breaker. I mean, mm-hmm. look, he has the huge serve, rips the forehands, then he controls it, gives the drop shot, takes it 1-0. I mean, that sets the tone for the tiebreak. He's like, look, I control this thing. You can run around and you have phenomenal defense. It's on me. Yeah, and if you're watching the video, you see a smile because in my notes, I read, I read what ends this one, and I could not be more excited to talk about it momentarily. But yeah, again, in terms of the break, Federer once again gets out to an early mini-break lead to love after you're right. He just, some of the forehands he hit, you're just like, oh, you're just like, are, you're just like, are you, you're just like, how? And again, that's why I'm speechless. And then, you know, a serve plus one from Djokovic, 2-1. But then the momentum shifts again. Missed uh, approach shot from Federer for two all. He misses a return as well. So it's 3-2 now. Back on serve Federer with two points to serve. Uh, There's a missed Fed drop. Or excuse me. Fed's up 3-2 with Djokovic now serving two. Then Fed misses a drop shot. So it's 3 all. Uh, Djokovic misses a plus one forehand. Or uh, yeah, misses a plus one forehand though. So now Fed gets up the mini break 4-3. So again, another momentum shift. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh yeah, Roger Federer is going to win this match because, and I, I don't want to do it right now. I just went shirtless and overserved. But Federer, you know, Djokovic takes his shirt, right? And he puts it over his head. And you can just tell he's like, ugh. Like after all of this fighting, you're going to miss that plus one forehand. And he starts to get, you know, frustrated. Frustrated, and then ace down the tee for Fed. Unreturnable serve out wide for Fed for six three. Then we got a net court to go Djokovic's way, and it's like, oh, maybe he is going to come back. And then he hits an ace out wide, the ball he had been setting up to keep Federer honest all this time on the do side for six five. But then we get to match point, and I mean, as only Roger Federer can do, ace down or ace out wide seven five. The finger wag. Or ace T, excuse me. Ace T. Yeah, I was about to say. I was like, I was like. <laughs> no, I have it in my notes. I, that's, again, Westoff, give me a rewind sound effect because I'm setting up a big moment here. Okay, let's try that again. 6-5. He goes ace T, finger wag, ball skyrockets to the crowd, and just, uh, come on! Like, I mean, uh, again, Full goosebumps for me right now. I, I'm, I I will be upfront. Am I a Federer fan? I, I, I guess everyone's a Federer fan to an extent, but am I one of those diehard Federer slappies? No, of course not. Uh, and if you've listened to our podcast, you know that. But you can't not cheer for Roger Federer in that moment. Again, my whole body right now is just 
I'm like, I, it's the best. Yeah, I mean, look, this this is an iconic moment. Um, you know, not only just in the men's game, but for Federer specifically. I mean, this one to me is, you know, we always see him, the classy guy, always saying the right thing. For some people, that's maybe what garners respect. To me, this makes me respect him so much more because I see this win and I see what you do and I'm like, yes, you are the face of this sport. <laughs> that is right. You know, and, and look, I Westhoff, just go ahead. I apologize for, uh, for my language here. I'm usually pretty good, but on this one, I can't. I mean, I've had my fair share of <laughs> you wins in tennis. This is the biggest <laughs> f- you win in tennis I've ever seen. I mean, the scream and the yell that he lets off while staring across the net I mean, this guy wanted it so bad, and it showed. And the level of tennis matched, you know, his desire to get this match done. And there was no more fitting into this. Ace down the tee, see ya. It's mine. The, yeah. This match is on my racket. Sorry. So, Jamie has, again, Crack Rackets fans, you know this. Jamie doesn't swear. And so, I hope you're watching the video, because the smile on my face, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's just the first time we've ever seen Roger Federer just say, hey, like, I'm the man. Like, you thought, oh, 42-0, that's cute. And, yeah, I blew two match points against you in that 2010 U.S. Open. But guess what? I know this loss hurts you way more than that loss hurt me. And I'm not saying there's any personal vitriol because I'm not going to project that onto them. And, you know, it was fascinating to see there after the match exchange, Djokovic just kind of like patting him on the chest. and just like, way to go. You were just too good today. And if I'm Djokovic, I'm like, you f***ing tree. Like, tree a little harder next time, Roger, because I'm not saying he tree. Roger Federer doesn't tree. He's just that good. But but you're right. I mean, just, it's literally, and again, I'm going to do this for the camera. He just goes, no, 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 Novak. And that finger wag, it was just so disrespectful. And you can just tell he's like, I lost to him four times or three times, whatever, on hard courts already this year. And this guy's supposed to be uh, all this and all that. He's the second coming, you know, whatever. He's the next generation. And it's literally just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, in terms of moments on a tennis court uh, and that maybe even, sh- like, you know, you think of specific shots. You think of that Djokovic, the forehand cross-court winner he hits to fight off that first match point, uh, you know, back at the U.S. Open. That's a memorable one. You think of the match point he had at Wimbledon that he fought off against Federer. That's another memorable one. But Djokovic crying after losing to Del Potro at the Olympics is something I will always remember. Murray crying after he lost to Federer and the expression on his face that subsequent year when he beats Djokovic to win his first Wimbledon. Those are two moments I will always remember. And this finger wag, you know, I, and I guess Federer crying when he lost that Australian Open, was it 2010 to Nadal? You know, at the end, he starts tearing uh, up. It was, 29, it, was 2000, it was 2009 or 2010. I can't remember which. Y- yeah. I think and it's maybe we'll do that. But yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, he's crying, whatever. That, that was another moment for sure. But this is in every top 10 moments of the 21st century, tennis-wise. It's just, how can it not be? The finger wag, just, it's like, I'm the greatest. And at that point, he had already passed Pete Sampras' mark. And, you know, if Djokovic passes him, maybe that this match fades a little bit into history. But until that moment, you know, until that moment happens, this finger wag is, uh uh-uh-uh. I'm the greatest. And for someone who presents himself as this humble, you know, multicultural, multilingual, just, you know, classy man, it's just disrespectful and it's incredible. 
Yeah, I mean, this is great. And and look, let's let's not say you can't be both because you get off the court. You know that look, you're supposed to be that competitor on the port on that court. It's just it's refreshing to see it. Let's let's put it that way. As as a guy who's also just a jerk on the court, you know, you don't get to see Federer do that. Right, I because know. usually he's just you know, oh, my strokes are so beautiful. I don't have to. I don't have to you know stoop to that level for for lack of a better phrase. This time he's like, no, I'm stooping. I won this match. <laughs> I ended this like little prick streak. Ah, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's just too good. No, it's an iconic moment, and you know, regardless of whatever happens, if Djokovic does pass him in the end, I think he will. I don't necessarily think that makes this you know less iconic because at the time, I mean, this is just something special. Yeah, it's certainly one of those moments that you never forget if you saw it. And, you know, in terms of your takeaways from this match before we wrap this podcast up and, you know, talk about the aftermath, um, we talked about it before. If if you think these guys are better now, go watch the YouTube highlights. XXS Tennis Channel has some highlights for you that, again, beg to differ uh, because these guys were just so exceptional. The other thing, the physicality. It's off the chart, and we talk about it all the time on our mini-break podcast. The game has gotten more and more physical. We see so many guys who are 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", nowadays because you almost have to have a stroke that big or some sort of weapon or be that physically capable just because of the way that the game is now played. But these guys are the peak. This is tennis at its finest. It will never get, you know, it may get better, but for the foreseeable future, uh, this is as good as it gets. I mean, these are two guys at the peak of their powers. Yeah, I mean, this is top tier. Um, this this reminds you of all the things, you know, it, it's great when you talk about, you know, the longevity of Federer's career. It's great that he's still out there playing and contending and, and even winning titles. But sometimes you just forget, and it's it's easy to do. It's a decade ago. It's it's easy to forget just how good he was. You know, you think about Federer, you forget about wh- how gifted of a mover he is because that's not necessarily something that you know is a staple of how he wins now. Man, you go back. That's how he got through matches. He could sit back and grind, right? I mean, he could do these things, and he employed all of these and so much more in this win. So you know being able to see that once again um i know and and sometimes it really is just easy as you know taking taking the time to go back and watch you know hey you've got a phenomenal match that you remember um go back through the highlights really watch it or you know if there's a full match go back and watch it and i mean really gruskin i mean this is this is why we're so excited about cr classics in general is because not only is it fun you know for the listeners it's so much fun for us or at least for me i mean this is i have a blast (laughs) going through these matches you know feeling those emotions again understanding the ramifications and really just especially when you go back to it like a time like 2011 just really being able to respect the level of these guys because like you mentioned it is just flat out absurd no i mean again it it sucks that he it doesn't suck actually it's perfect that he grew up in grew up that his career overlapped with rafa's because otherwise none of these record books would be close at all and the reason i mentioned that he's an exceptional clay quarter listen to this eight-year stretch semi-final final 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 title quarterfinal final semi-final at the french open you want to go past that quarterfinal in 2013 as well i mean this guy was just the real deal. The biggest stages, the biggest moments, he always brought his A game. That's Roger Federer's legacy. That's why he's been so good for so long. That's why his career has extended 
surpassed any of the greats who came before him. And of course, modern technology plays a role in that as well. Uh, but the guy has two sets of twins. He's clearly physically gifted. And it, I mean, this match is a reminder of just all of the tools he has at his disposal. And, you know, now let's talk about the aftermath of this one because, yeah, Rafa goes on to win the title. And I don't think that shocks anyone. It's so difficult to maintain that level back to back. Rafa just so perfectly built to beat Federer on clay, uh, lefty into the one handed backhand, the heavy spin. Uh, you know, he wins that match 7 5, 7 6, 5 7, 6 1. Uh, so Rafa comfortably cruises. And what's so fascinating is you talk about the, the best, the rest of the match, and it's just like, um, <laughs> uh, you talk about the rest of the match. Sorry, I, I'm laughing because, it, you know, for Djokovic, this was just a blip, right? He goes to on to reach number one on July 4th uh, for, for the first time in his career. In the 2011 season, 10-1 against Nadal and Federer. You know, that one loss is this match. He wins Wimbledon. He wins the U.S. Open to capture three or four majors for the first time in his career. He wins what was a then record, and by the way, he ends up breaking this record, but five Masters events that season. He goes 6-0 and against Rafa in finals. So, you know, one of the what-ifs is if Djokovic wins this match, does he go on to win the French Open in 2011? Do we see this breaking of the fever where maybe Rafa loses a little bit of confidence on the clay? Maybe Djokovic is able to sneak out one or two more clay court, you know, Roland Garros's... Uh, uh, one more clay court Roland Garros is, excuse me, one more French, uh, one or two more French Open titles over the course of his career. And what's even more fascinating is, I don't want to say the tailspin because he was still pretty good, but for Federer, he loses to Songa at Wimbledon after going up two sets to love for the first time in his career, blowing that sort of uh, lead. That U.S. Open. Certainly, Djokovic still felt a little animosity. He once again fights off two match points to beat Federer for the second straight year. And again, it's the first season since 2002 that Federer goes without a slam. Uh, So, I mean, it's fascinating. You look at the aftermath of that, Jamie. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly possible. Look, we we love to play the what-if game. And and in this one, you know, you can certainly make the case that Djokovic was playing at the level, you know, high enough to win this. Sure, you know, Nadal ends up beating Fed in four um, at this one. But, I mean, I don't think anybody is going to say that Djokovic wouldn't have had at least a decent shot to win this match against Nadal. Uh, Because, look, who could question him? Especially if he had come through a Federer who was playing this well. I mean, that's got to be scary, even for Nadal, king of clay, comfortable, so comfortable um, at the French Open. I mean, definitely a realistic possibility. You know, it's interesting you mentioned sort of a call it a tailspin or just what happens to Federer in the rest of the year. It is interesting. Um, and, you know, hopefully that doesn't make you sort of take anything away from his performance in this match. Um, because, you know, you want to look back on it fondly and just say, you know, take this match for what it was. Because at this point in time, at this moment on this day, I mean, Federer was just in a phenomenal spot. Um, and so that's how it was, regardless of what happened after, regardless of any blown, you know, leads after that at other big time tournaments. This is what it was. And he comes through to it with one of the most iconic matches that that I can remember. 
Yeah, and again, if this was the spin zone, the spin on it would be it took that much of an effort to beat Novak Djokovic in 2011 that it just drained everything else out of him. And the last point I want to make is I think this is the peak of the big four. I think this was as good as it got for all four of them. And why I say it's a big four, because you look at some of the stats, they win every Masters event in 2011. They do that in three seasons, 2011, 2013, 2015. You look at the spots, you know, four times have the big Big Four occupied all four semifinals at a Grand Slam. The 2008 U.S. Open, the 2011 French Open, the 2011 U.S. Open, and the 2012 Australian Open. So, you know, that's three out of four majors. And the fact that Rafa, I think it was Rafa who doesn't make the semifinals at the 2011 Wimbledon, uh, you're not going to hold that against him because, you know, on, in theory, grass should never be his best surface. Um, but, I mean, you know, in 2011, they occupied 14 out of a possible 16 Grand Slam semifinal slots. Uh, that doesn't happen. That's f***ing nuts. Like, I mean, it just is. It's it's crazy. And so, you know, you're looking at this, Jamie, and the fact that I think, you know, again, given the age gaps, Federer sure, certainly had plenty of success. 2017, he wins two majors. He wins another one the next year. And I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But this is the only season where you could reasonably make an argument that all of them are either at the start of or at the end of the peaks of their career, the peaks of their physical powers, the peaks of just what they are capable of on a tennis court. And this match epitomizes that because Djokovic, he wins this match. Let's say he wins the French Open. He's 44-0. That's the best streak. That's the best start of a season, you know, just extended stretch of time in tennis history. And it might already be, even without this loss. But that Federer stopped the streak? Peak. I think it's the peak. I think this was them at their best. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, this is one of the few times where you can say that their primes overlapped this heavily um, and that they Mm -hmm. were able to bring their, you know, top, top levels to the forefront, you know, each and every time they they brought it on the court. And look, Djokovic was so on fire that sometimes in most of the time, at least in 2011, he was beating these guys, even on their preferred surfaces, um, looking at Nadal particularly. But the fact that Federer can still step in because it's 2011, because this is, you know, in a way, at least prime adjacent Federer, He's able to win this match. And so, yeah, you mentioned this moment in time as certainly a special one to circle simply because the level of tennis was just that ridiculous. And the fact that they were able to sustain it for this period of time shows just how good they were. Yeah, it was just nuts, right? And again, that's the takeaway. I guess we never really went through what the final score was, but Federer in this match again knocks off Novak Djokovic 7-6, 7-5 in that breaker, 6-3, 3-6, 7-6, 7-5 in the breaker. And the reason we started with this is because, in my opinion, and this is the thought I'll leave you on, and it's really hard to say because there are so many matches over the careers, and, you know, there might actually be, like, a random third round in 2007 where he just played out of his mind and he just annihilated some poor soul. But in a, on a big stage, in a big moment, even though this wasn't a Grand Slam final, this is the best I've ever seen Roger Federer play. And I'm curious, you know, do you agree with that? <sighs> It's certainly up there. Look, I mean, you can point to other times much earlier in the 2000s, particularly on grass, um, Mm -hmm. and say that maybe there were some better performances. But look, for this time frame, and especially given the scenario with how well Djokovic was doing, the fact that he was looking truthfully unstoppable. I mean, the guy was actually undefeated, and that Fed was able to step in and win this match. Yeah, this is top-tier Federer, and you're going to have a hard time finding, you know, a lot of other performances that sort of eclipse this one. 
No, it was just it, it was a sensational match. And again, it's not as though Novak Djokovic goes on to a poor year. He wins the next two slams. He goes seventy uh-huh. and six overall. Twenty eleven was his first signature season. Really, you know that and twenty fifteen are the two best seasons Novak Djokovic has ever played, and they might be the two best individual seasons ever. Uh, so uh-huh. the fact that Federer was able to beat him speaks to again his ability to rise to the moment his ability just the way he played in this match and so i feel like we've hit everything any final thoughts in this one jamie before we wrap this bad boy up i think we got it i'm just excited (laughs) for our next classic should we do 10 more minutes on the finger wag i really could like the mechanics of it's just for me i think westhoff might kill you (laughs) but it's just like a man who doesn't celebrate if if that doesn't tell you why we picked this match I, I almost said, you know, that was my biggest reason. It's like, we get to talk about the finger wag. I don't even care about the tennis. It's just for him, his personality, to do that, it speaks to how momentous, you know, this match was, how incredible he felt after winning it. So I agree. I think that puts a bow on it. This was a really fun match. And as Jamie mentioned, we are really excited to be doing these CR classics moving forward. We, uh, I believe we're going to get Max Rothman out of hibernation to come out of the den to do one of these matches. And, you know, there are so many we can pick from. So if you have any recommendations, if you have any thoughts, I'm going to go back and tell you why I was laughing is because J- Jamie was texting me and said, you know, someone's going to say, Hey, Jimmy Connors was playing great into his forties. And that was really funny. Hey, great shot to you. It threw me me off my rhythm um but yeah you know any recommendations any thoughts on this match we would love to hear them and for those listening to this in podcast form let them yeah, i want you guys to know again that this will be presented in video form with highlights filtered in with all the different sound effects as well because our super producer daniel westoff is up to all sorts of amazing things on youtube and if you know it's not just this video if you want to hear any of our podcasts in video form more importantly our new series Overserved, which pokes fun at all of the unintentional comedy you can see on a week-by-week basis on tour as well you can find all of that on our youtube account and please 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 go subscribe there. I will stop asking as soon as we hit that 1,000 mark. And we've got a ways to go. I'm not going to lie, but that's the magic number. As soon as I know how many of you listen to these podcasts, and 1,000 seems feasible. It definitely seems like a possibility. So please go and do that. And I brought them up. Shout out to super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westhoff for the <laughs> of an editing job they continue to do uh, day in, day out. It's not just this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast. We were fortunate enough to have Bethany Maddox-Sands on uh, on the day of her, well, two days before her birthday but we released it the day of her birthday so that counts uh and that that was maybe the most fun interview i've ever done so please go and listen to that we've also got some really fun stuff lined up for later in the week i know we've got dennis kudla coming back on the show we've also got chris woodruff uh the tennessee men's tennis head coach coming on the show as well so be on the lookout for all of those on the cracked interviews podcast and again if you need that daily fix of tennis go listen to our mini break like rate subscribe review all of those podcasts share them with your friends if you have any commentary please let us know on twitter instagram facebook youtube at cracked rackets i'm at great shot pod he's at jamie mcdonald if you want to reach out to us directly we are always good for some fun banter back and forth and of course again we would love to hear what all of you guys have in mind if you've missed any of our content at all go to the website cracked but with that being said for 
my wonderful co-host, James Foster McDonald. I promised him under an hour, and we only went an hour 15, which usually I'm later than that, or my promises usually go a little bit further, so not too bad by us, but for my wonderful co-host, who, again, this was such a fun thing to do. I know we're looking forward to doing more of them in the future. Our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, remember, it's not a mini break, so what do we tell our listeners? Uh, hey, great show. <laughs> well, I just had to throw that in, but we thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed our first edition of CR Classics. Classics.